Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. One of my favorite questions to ask in getting to know you all is how you came to be part of our church. And one of you answered this way, I came for an Advent service and there was a live camel right inside there. What could I do but plan to come again forever? And it makes me wonder, what other unlikely animals can we stuff inside here? I mean, are unicorns available? Our passage for today has a vision of animals in mutual harmony. The wolf and the lamb are bunkmates. The cow and the bear are in line at the salad bar. Children treat poisonous snakes as playthings, and Scripture promises they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. That world is not yet, it is safe to say. I remember the deep anxiety when our children were little. The world was nothing but danger. Cars, electric sockets, stairs, strangers, anything that could be swallowed. Our job as parents was to be in a defensive crouch 100% of the time to try and get them to adulthood. Israel's life is like that. Anytime you go out at night, you might eat, meet with something that wants to devour you. And these animals can also stand in for hostile nations. Israel is surrounded, and any one of these foreign belligerents could take a bite out of her at any time. The lion is mentioned most often here. It's a symbol for the Assyrian Empire, which destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC, and who is still on the prowl. Judah is afraid. And in the middle of that fear, the prophet Isaiah offers outrageous hope. Not only will God protect you from the lion, God will domesticate the lion. It'll be a pet and eat straw. It'll be vegetarian besties with the bear. And a little child doesn't need defending anymore. No, no, no. A little child will be Lord of this menagerie of dangerous critters. Now, the prophet could have just said, don't worry, God will protect us from Assyria. But prophets are poets. They dispense magic. Don't worry, God is going to make the lion a housebroken pet and end all danger from the animal kingdom forever through a little child. This is what prophets do. They say, your hopes are too small. Imagine the unimaginable, because that's what's really real. There was a basketball player in the NBA named Manute Bull. He was the tallest player to ever play at the time, seven foot seven. You know how we sometimes say when we make a mistake, my bad? Manute Bull was in practice, learning English, made a mistake, and he said, my bad. And his teammates fell out laughing, and they started saying it to one another. And now all of us say it too. <laughs> the language of Shakespeare is changed by a Sudanese immigrant basketball player. 
One rite of passage in his Dinka tribe was to become a man, you had to kill a lion. And the media got hold of this and kept asking him about it until Bull finally said, look, it was little and it was sleeping. <laughs> All romance and danger evaporated immediately. Now, it's possible to kill a sleeping lion. It's possible to kill a raging lion. It's not possible to domesticate one, to make it into a vegetarian. God promises the impossible. Woody Allen jokes that if the leopard and the lamb lay down together, the lamb won't be getting much sleep, and only the leopard will be getting up in the morning. It's impossible to do anything different. But remember what God promises. Sometimes we refer to this as Isaiah's apocalypse. Now, I say the word apocalypse, and immediately you think of terrifying images of the end of the world. But there is nothing terrifying in this passage. Judah is already terrified. And so the prophet responds with outrageous hope. Animal advocates see hope in this passage because it's a vision of animals no longer destroying one another. And of course, the animal that destroys the most other animals is us human beings. They're Christian vegetarian organizations that take this as their text. They say, well, we didn't eat one another in the Garden of Eden. We won't eat one another in heaven. In Jesus Christ, heaven is already here, so pass the kale. In Jesus' own ministry, there's not a lot about animals. This passage in Isaiah fills in the gaps. This little child so alters the cosmos that predators don't prey on prey anymore. God doesn't just fix us and our little hearts. God ends violence between species and nations. You see how our hope is too small? And I just wonder what lion you're facing, whether sleeping or raging, what devastating flood that reminds us of conquering armies. I've been here long enough with you, three months or so, to hear stories about this. Those of you who wish you could have children who end up not being able to. Pain between parents and children. Relationships that won't heal. Illnesses, mental, physical, spiritual. God promises to heal everything that hurts in us and also everything that hurts in every animal that breathes, everything with a heartbeat. And this is no fantasy. It's happening right now. My former colleague at the Vancouver School of Theology, Rabbi Dr. Laura Duhan Kaplan, wrote this lovely little book on animals in Israel's scripture. And she points this out. Friendships between different species is actually not uncommon. It happens all the time. Baby ducks playing with baby crocodiles and not knowing any difference. And you know what notices? The internet. Some of the most watched clips on the internet are of animals that should be killing each other 
who are actually friends. You watch. I know you do. It happens. Isaiah promises a future in which friendship between animals is not only possible, it's not only the norm, it's the only thing there is. Pain, sorrow, predation, those are aberrations. Our deepest sorrows now signal something that's passing away. Death. What's coming is life. Life and more life. Rabbi Laura points to a famous painting. You'd recognize it if you saw it. Edward Hicks was a Quaker painter and minister in Pennsylvania in the 1800s. He painted Isaiah's apocalypse dozens of times. He couldn't get it out of his imagination. And sometimes he would have the animals in the foreground and in the background, the signing of a peace treaty between William Penn and local indigenous peoples. That's the Shakamaxon Treaty of 1670. And unlike most such treaties, Europeans held to this one for 70 years. God bless the Quakers. I mean, they're not just into oatmeal and songs. They're into peace, right? Peace in the animal kingdom now, peace among us humans, seems unlikely, but they do happen. And that's why we're not off the hook with our terrible politics. Peace can be made now. Should I pass out the kale after service, do you think? Now, one image for conquest in the Bible is a flood. Assyria subjugates its enemies and they are drowned. They are no more. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. The only flood that's coming is this. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The flood that's coming is God's own mercy. Christians see baptism here. We'll have baptisms in church next Sunday. Baptism is a sort of death by drowning. And even more, it's life unending. Some of us admit to one another bravely that we don't really know how to pray. Some of us go into ministry because we don't really know how to pray and we think we'll figure it out. Nope, we just get worse at it. Prayer is one of those things that we're not good at. Here's what this passage says. Your longing to pray well is a longing for a day when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. Keep longing for it. That is a kind of prayer, that yearning. Our ancestors in the church and in Judaism point out that in the Garden of Eden, animals don't eat one another. The first record of an animal being killed is after our ancestors' sin, God makes animal skins into clothes in an act of mercy for us. That requires the killing of an animal. Before that, no animal killing. In Noah's Ark, no animals eat one another. Because if there's only two of each, eating something means it's gone forever. God is the first conservationist. So all fruit and salad all the time on the ark. Maybe eggs in a pinch. These moments of salvation show us what eternal salvation is. Not eating one another. Not destroying one another. 
When God is close to save, there is peace, not just between peoples, but between species. I wonder what the mosquitoes will eat. C.S. Lewis was asked if there'd be mosquitoes in heaven. He said, no, that's what the other place is for. Sometimes jokes tell the most truth, right? Karl Barth was asked, will we see our loved ones in heaven? And he said, not just our loved ones. (laughs) Enmity will be gone. Hatred undone. Friendship all there is. Because friendship is all that God is. And at the center of this menagerie of life, this limitless interspecies kindness, is this. A little child shall lead them. I'm struck by the stained glass in our beautiful sanctuary. Look how often the child appears in this stained glass. Protestants didn't normally use stained glass before the 20th century all that often. But look around. We have Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being cuddled in Mary's lap there. We have Jesus growing up strong, learning carpentry from his stepfather there. We have Jesus saying, don't stop the children from coming to me. Don't hinder them there. Lots of glass focused on the child. Why? Well, this church was built right before World War I. Lots of these windows put in right after World War I. And in that war, Canada bled so terribly. And so another pastor in this town puts the stained glass this way. She says, Canada's parents poured their grief into glass. Lots of it focused on lost little boys. Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ is not my favorite, but there's one scene I love. Mary is watching Jesus carry his cross. It's based on Catholic meditation on the stations of the cross, where he falls three times. And as Mary looks at her son falling, she remembers when he was just learning to walk and would fall and hurt himself. And she would scoop him up and comfort him. Now when he falls under the weight of that cross, under the weight of all of our sins, she longs to scoop him up and comfort him. But she can't. The soldiers won't let her. This is what God says about our pain. God's not distant from our pain. God buckles under our pain. And Mary grieves alongside him. So much of our pain is in the gap between generations. Mothers and daughters, fathers and sons. A wise elder, Phyllis Tickle, used to joke that grandparents and grandchildren get along so well because they have a common enemy. That'd be you. I hear stories from you of women who are desperate to be moms and can't, of parents alienated from their children and vice versa. Here's one of the things it means to be human. Family makes us and then undoes us. This is why I love that Jesus' own family is so dysfunctional. (laughs) It's no Norman Rockwell portrait. Jesus has no biological father. Whispers about that follow him around his whole life. His siblings and his mother think he's crazy at one point and want to lock him up. I can show you the chapter and verse. 
His brothers flee when he's in trouble and he needs them the most. They're gone. Family makes us and injures us. And you know what Jesus promises? Hey, I'm in a family too. (laughs) Just as messed up as yours is. I'm injured too. And I'll heal those fractures one day. You'll see. Isaiah promises the snake will be as harmless as any of these stuffies up here. It's hard to imagine anything more terrifying than a snake being between you and a child you love, right? The snake turns up often in Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, it tempts our first parents. But then the snake also shows up positively at times in Scripture. When the Israelites are bitten by poisonous snakes in the wilderness... God directs Moses to put a snake on a pole and have all the Israelites look at it and they'll be healed. You can still see medical imagery of a pole with a snake. That's an image from the Exodus. And Jesus himself says this very strange thing. I sometimes ask other ministers if they understand this verse. The answer is always, nope, I got nothing. (laughs) Here it is. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus, on his cross, is an image for the snake that cures. St. Mark promises in one place that if you believe, you can handle poisonous snakes and you won't be harmed. There are churches that take this frighteningly literally. I can give you some addresses. There's a fantastic book about snake-handling churches. A journalist spent years with them, didn't believe in God, but by the end, he joined in picking up the poisonous snakes. He said, I don't know about the God bit, but these snakes are awesome. <laughs> Keep them away from me. Sometimes we've got to read the Bible figuratively. You know what I'm saying? But here's the point. The snake is a creature God makes. It reflects God's glory. It has a ticket on the ark. Sometimes it symbolizes evil, but it can also symbolize good. Early Christians saw the snake as an image for resurrection because it's constantly regenerating its own skin. And so I wonder about your serpent, your deepest sorrow, how that can become a surprising source of healing, not just for you, but for others. How can your wound, healed over, scarred, how can that become your superpower? Isaiah promises poisonous snakes will be playthings in the hands of the Savior. One day, the thing that's trying to kill us can be a plaything for us too. It can even be that now, surprisingly. The most painful relationship in my life was that with my mom. You'll hear about her more in the years to come, but for now, there's only sorrow. I so wish I could have had a good relationship with my mom the way my kids have with their mother, the way many of you have with your mothers, but I don't have that. Here's the thing. If I have any sensitivity to human pain at all with which I minister, it's from that broken relationship, not the unbroken ones. It's all from that wound that scar. So strangely, I wouldn't give any of that relationship with my mom back, even if I could. 
It's the snake that's become a surprising source of life and health. There's someone else in this passage too. We have God the Son, Jesus our Lord, glimpsed. And we have another person of the Holy Trinity. We're teaching this Alpha course for folks who are new to Christian faith. And they ask the best questions. So one woman in that course this week said, okay, you Christians talk a lot about God the Father. I hear it. You talk a lot about Jesus. Aren't you supposed to have another person of the Trinity? Isn't there supposed to be a Holy Spirit running around? You see why we have to have new people asking wonderful questions like that? The Spirit is often the forgotten person of the Trinity. Maybe God raised up the Pentecostal movement in 1906 to remind us all, hey, I'm Holy Spirit as well. There were zero Pentecostals on planet Earth in 1905. We're getting close to a billion today. That's not bad growth. Remember what Isaiah promises. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus is on no solo journey. Everything he does is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's like a sponge soaked up with the power of the Spirit, ready to dispense that power on all the rest of us. Isaiah says the Holy Spirit gives what we all wish for our young people. Wisdom, courage, kindness. In fact, we wish that for us old people as well. Those are the Spirit's gifts given to overflowing. In fact, those gifts are what the Holy Spirit is. Sometimes when we Christians speak of the Holy Spirit, we speak of the Spirit as gift, capital G, The Holy Spirit is God who cannot stop giving gifts. That's who God is. Another way we speak of the Spirit is this. God the Father looks at God the Son and loves Him. God the Son gazes back at God the Father and loves Him. That love, capital L, is the Holy Spirit. The love between the Father and the Son shared with us. You know how in any human relationship... The relationship is a third thing, right? We mark relationships with anniversaries. We toast the health of relationships. Sometimes we curse relationships when they go badly. But it's its own independent entity. That's a little bit like God the Holy Spirit. The love that the Father and the Son share. Our Pentecostal siblings celebrate the Holy Spirit with hands raised, speaking in tongues, I'm guessing the worship committee would not pass something that insisted on that at Timothy Eaton Memorial Church. It's not very Anglo-Saxonly acceptable, you know, but it's very, very human. You can see this anytime anyone celebrates anything. Football victories, nightclubs, street celebrations, apparently even people born blind. When they accomplish something, will throw their hands in the air. They've never even seen it done before. It's a deeply human thing to hold our hands up. That's God the Holy Spirit pouring himself out in ecstatic, self-giving love. Even if the folks celebrating have no idea. Especially then, God is nothing but gift, nothing but love. 
and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, you might notice some of the times we do mention the Holy Spirit in here. We'll have baptisms next week. If the Holy Spirit is not invoked, it's not a Christian baptism. You have to do it over again and get it right this time. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper at that altar, we call on the Holy Spirit to make ordinary bread and wine and people into the body and blood of Christ. When we need something big, even we call on the Holy Spirit. Some of you noticed last week we have the little box that names churches to pray for. And you noticed last week we were in the box. It was our turn in the penalty box, right? So some of you asked, does this mean we're in trouble? Should I get a copy of the expense report? And my answer was the same to everyone. Yeah, we're in trouble. (laughs) The church is always in trouble. Martin Luther said, when God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel next door. There is no church that's not in trouble. Join me in praying for the church all the time. In fact, we can invoke the Holy Spirit now. Pray with me. Holy Spirit. And we'll try that again. Holy Spirit. Come upon us with your power, your gifts, and your love. Okay, we have God the Son, a little child, leading this animal kingdom, this zoo made into friends, and we have God the Holy Spirit pouring out gifts and love. Where does that leave us? You and me. I mean, sermons should have something practical in them, right? Something you can take home with you. Well, here's a small thing that might actually be a big thing. You know how sometimes you're listening to music and a lyric jumps you, assaults you. It worms its way into your ear. The Germans call that an earworm. It's a good name for it. This happened to me in here recently. We were singing, Christ whose glory fills the skies. I even knew it was coming. I was in the meeting where we planned to sing that song, and it still accosted me. Christ whose glory fills the skies, Christ the one, the only light. Charles Wesley is saying, compared to the sun that powers all life, Jesus Christ is so much brighter that our sun dims in comparison. It was like the hymn chose me. I memorized it. I've been singing it at every red light, every time I'm waiting for the train, every time I'm waiting for something online that will never happen. I'm singing that song. When I was a kid and I got dragged to church, I hated the hymns. I'd look ahead in the hymnal for how many stanzas we had to endure, and I'd be like, oh, there's 47 more of these to come. Here's what the church is saying in her wisdom. These words are good and beautiful. People long dead prayed these when they really needed a prayer. Slow down. Let them seep into your pores. Grow into your bones. They'll make something new out of you. And so wait for that song lyric to jump you, to befriend you, to make you a new you. That's a good way to prepare for the coming of Christ at Advent. He's coming to heal every enmity between every animal, human and otherwise. And he's coming to pour out his Holy Spirit. And you know what there'll be when that happens? Life. Life. And nothing but life. Let us pray. Gracious God, Lord of the universe, little child, bring your peaceable kingdom and do so quickly. We pray for our world, 
all its illness and war. We ask for your healing and peace now. We pray for animals, for their place in our lives, and for their kind treatment everywhere. We pray for our city with its glories and aches. We pray you'll transfigure us into your city of God. We pray for our country with its delights and sorrows, for those in positions of authority. We pray for our church, that you would make us the church you dream about. We pray for every agent of peace and justice and mercy in this city and in our church. We ask that you'd strengthen weak hands and feed and house your beloved poor. We pray for our lives. We present to you its cracks and breaks and ask for your healing. We thank you for our joys and ask that you might shield and multiply our joys. We pray for our enemies and those who wish us harm and ask that you would transfigure them and us into your holy people. We make this and every prayer in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy world be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.